now go into a time of scripture reading so that Pastor Bill can preach God's word for us. And he'll be preaching out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is God's word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that, our Lord, that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all of these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We're taking a break in our series on Mark today because today we have the privilege of celebrating a very special event that God is growing our church. We're receiving a new member, as you heard earlier this afternoon, and we're also going to be baptizing nine children of our members, something we've not been able to do for over a year. We're baptizing them because God gives a special gift to children who are born into a family with at least one believing parent. He makes promises to them that are symbolized in baptism. It's the same promise that he makes to their parents that if they will meet the conditions of the covenant, what's the condition of the covenant? That they trust God to save them and rescue them. That's it. If they will have faith, if they will trust God, then he will be their God and they will be his people does not mean that the children that we're baptizing today are automatically Christians when we baptize them, but God counts them together with their parents as part of his people while they're learning about him. And so they get benefits from him even before they express their own faith. And a primary one of those benefits is that they live in a world where people teach them about the invisible God, about who he is, about what he's like about what he loves, about what he's for, about what he's against. Our kids get to know what God is like, and they get to know what his world is like. They get to know what works in his world and what doesn't work in his world, how to live in line with the way that the world is and how not to run against it. And a really important part of how that gets communicated to our children is through their parents. It's not just in our book of church order. It's also what we just read there in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that it's our joy, it's also our responsibility as parents to bring this benefit directly to our children. And if we are doing this in the way that God calls us to, at some point our children will start to notice. They should recognize how intentional we are as we're trying to fill their world with a sense of who God is and what he's like and what that means for their lives. And as they get older, they should start to wonder, why, why are we doing this? 
Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? There should come a time when a child asks a question like that. What's the point of all this? Why are we talking about God all the time? How come you always bring him up and why is he so much a part of our family? Why does it matter what he thinks about me and what he thinks about what I'm doing? How come you keep bringing scripture into our conversation? What is the meaning? What's the point of all that the Lord our God has commanded you? That's a good question. It's a normal question. It's a question you should expect your child to ask if you're raising them to be aware of God in their world. So we'll start there today trying to answer that question. We'll start with the child's question, why does God give us his commands? And then second, we're going to think about what is it that we're supposed to do with his commands so that they have a chance of provoking that kind of question. So today, just two questions. Why does he give his commands to us? And second, what do we do with them? Or to say it a little bit differently, what is his purpose and what's our responsibility? So first, why does God give us these commands? Notice in verse 21 that the answer to that question has something to do with Egypt. It might sound a little strange to us. It did not sound strange to the Israelites. Egypt was the land that they had just come out of. It was a land where they'd been enslaved, where they had been singled out because of their ethnic background, when they were forced to live and work in an oppressive system that was literally killing them and their children. They were in so much misery and so helpless in their misery that their only recourse was to cry out to God for relief, and he heard them. He intervened, verse 22, with powerful signs and wonders to free them from the Egyptians. He saved them from a destructive power that controlled them and their lives, a power that they could not get free from any other way. But he saved them for a purpose. He didn't simply look down, see something that was wrong, something that was unjust, and then step in and put a stop to it. He wasn't simply interested in ending their suffering. That was important. But that was one step along the way to something that was even more important. Think about it this way. If all God wanted to do was end Israel's suffering, he could have done that without them ever leaving Egypt, without them ever having to wander through the wilderness. He could have entered into the oppression of Egypt. He could have rebalanced the power inequality between the Israelites and the Egyptians and then just left the Israelites there. But he didn't. Verse 23, he brought them out from there and he brought them out with a purpose verse 23 again that he might bring them in and give them a land that he swore to give to their fathers he brought them out delivered them rescued them to bring them into something else something different his purpose was to bring them in that was the goal but notice that he doesn't bring them in immediately instead he did something very important first he brought them out and then what he spoke to them they met with him in the wilderness and he talked to them and that's when he gave them the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that Moses has been going over throughout the book of Deuteronomy. God brought them out of a place that had an unjust, oppressive way of thinking about them and treating them. But before they got to a new place, he gave them a completely different way of thinking and living. After which, he brought them to a new place. Now, do you see what he's doing here? He brought them out of one society, out of one way of understanding and organizing life, 
in order to give them a different way of organizing and understanding life. So they would go to this new location and create a new different society, a different kind of society, one that had a different kind of morality, a morality that reflects God's morality, that reflects what he values, a morality that's in line with the one that he built into the structure of the universe. It was a morality then that should structure how they structured their own lives and how they engaged other people. And so he brought his people out of a world that imposed one moral understanding of what was right and just onto the universe in order to bring them into a different world with a different moral understanding, his own. And he had to bring them out because those two moralities were at odds with each other. You realize that all moral systems are. See, each moral system, whether you call it a philosophy, a worldview, a mental construction of the world, each one asks and answers three questions. Each moral system asks first, what is the ideal world? What is the vision of the world that we should hold up as best and right? What is the vision that all right-thinking people should pursue? What is the ideal world? Second, what's wrong with the world? What has gotten in the way so that the world is not ideal? What keeps getting in the way? What's holding us back, preventing us from living in that ideal world? And then third, how do we fix it? How do we go from what is wrong to what's ideal? Every moral structuring of the universe, every philosophy, worldview, and mental construction asks what's ideal, what's wrong, and how do we fix what's wrong? And that's why there is so much emotional energy attached to our philosophical differences. It's because the answers to those questions move in different directions. If you hold one view of what's right and what's wrong, then you will prioritize doing things that someone with a different view will either see as, at best, unnecessary or, at worst, as problematic. At best, they'll take a look at what you're doing and they'll say, well, that, that's relatively harmless. You're not really going to help anyone because you're pointed in the wrong direction, but at least you're not going to hurt someone else. Or they're going to take a look at what you're doing and they're going to say, actually, that's bad. It's going to hold back progress. It's going to perpetuate what's wrong with the world. It's actually hurting other people. And so at best, they'll either tolerate you, which, frankly, that's kind of condescending. Okay, it's okay for you. It's not okay for me. That's condescending. They'll tolerate you or they'll see what you're doing as a threat. And that happens because these philosophical ways of understanding the world, these moral structurings, are incompatible with each other. And that's why God's approach with Israel and Egypt was not syncretistic. When your child asks, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, God basically responds to that question by saying, Egypt's answers are at odds with mine to those three questions. I made the world, and so I know what I built into it. I know what it should be. I know how it works best. And my goal is to have people living in the society who, verse 25, are righteous, who live rightly with me by ordering their lives in line with the world that I made. Egypt, on the other hand, came along and imposed their own morality onto the world that I made. They pretended that the world did not already have a moral structure built into it. 
but that they could write whatever they wanted onto it and that they could live any way that they wanted to. And the result of their experiment, their creating their own moral structure, the result is that they ruined and devastated people's lives and literally killed them. The system they created was so bad, built on such a bad foundation that God says, I could not leave my people there in the middle of a system that's antagonistic to me and to the way that I've conceived of the world. Could not leave them there in a system that does not value what I value. And so God brought his people out of that moral social structure, the one that they had grown up in, to bring them into another one, one that would reflect him and one that would actually benefit them. It's the point of verse 24. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Do you hear that? God's commands are what? They are for our good. God replaces one broken system that runs counter to his universe a system that does not lead to human flourishing, he replaces that system with one of his own, one that is for our good. And that necessity of embracing his system over any other is true for you and me as well. We can't pretend that the way that the world around us constructs morality is going to produce a better result in people's lives or in society's life than God's structuring will. And so we need to line up with him and with the way that he built the universe, with the way the world is, and not pretend that the moral universe is plastic, that it can be molded to suit our desires. Now, somebody might be thinking, I don't know, Bill, that, that, that sounds a little, a little intolerant, a little too black and white. I don't think that the world that I live in is really all that bad. If you're thinking that, let me ask you this. Do you think that the Egyptians thought that their world was all that bad? Do you think that they went to bed at night in fear and trembling before a righteous and a holy God, thinking, man, the world that we have created is horrible. It is so screwed up. Look at all the evil things that we're doing to people, things that keep growing out of our attempts to create our own morality. Do you think they thought that way? Realize, of course not. God had to challenge their authority 10 times with 10 different plagues before they would listen to him and let his people leave. They had no interest in changing their society. They wanted to hang on to it the way that it was, which tells you they had no idea how bad it was. And that's always the case when we create our own moralities. We believe them. They grow out of what we value. They embody what we value. And it's not until God comes along and says, here's my morality, here's what I value, that we start to get a little sense of how different our ideas and our values are from his, of how little ours line up with his. God brought his people out so that they could create a new society, a new reality. And he calls his people to respond by letting go of their past way of thinking about life and the way that they used to organize life. And he calls them to intentionally reorient themselves and all that they do around him in this new reality. And so we have to reprogram the way that we think in order to live in the world that he's building. That's point one, that's why God gave us his commands. Point two, what are we supposed to do with them? Two things here. First, we internalize them ourselves, and second, 
we teach them to others, specifically to our children. First, we internalize them. Verse 5, God's people are to love this God who has rescued them with all their heart, all their soul, all their might, with every part of their being. He is to be the organizing center of your life so that every facet of life is now connected to him. How do you love him like that? You take seriously, verse 6, that his words have to be on your heart that his words have to be inside of you, that they have to be at the most fundamental organizing core of you. They have to inform and influence what you value, what you hold most dear, what you are most committed to, what you will not let go of. They have to be inside of you. But they have to be more than just inside of you. Verse 8, they have to come outside. His commands are to be as a sign on your hand. As a sign, what does that mean? That, that's a metaphor, right? That, that means that they're, they're always on your hands. They dominate what you do and how you live. They're to be on your hands and, verse 8 again, his commands shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Frontlets, something that's fixed here so that it doesn't matter which way you look or where you're going, there's always something that you're seeing first before you see anything else out there. And it's always what? His commands, his commands are to be on your hands. They dominate what you do. They dominate your vision. They provide that lens through which you look at all the rest of life. How do you love this God who's rescued you, who's brought you out of a life that was killing you? You internalize his beliefs and his expectations so that you can form everything that you think and everything that you do to him and to his world. Which is what? That's just the gospel. It's the essence of the gospel. God takes the first step toward us. He loves us. And so he delivers us from a way of life that's killing us. And now we respond in love. Not to pay him back. Not to try to earn his love. But simply to love this one who has loved us this much. And a key way that we love him is that we make his words more important to us than anyone else's words. That means if God has rescued you to live among his people, and if you want to live well, you have to rethink the world. Part of following God means entering into a lifelong process of learning, of relearning. You have to learn to think like he does. You have to reimagine reality along the lines that he already does think about it. You have to conform yourself to what is. Rather than trying to make the world around you conform to what you want it to be. And that's what makes Christianity so challenging to the modern world. It's what sets our faith at odds with our society because that is not the way that we've been taught in the West to imagine the relationship between ourselves and the larger world. Carl Truman, uh, in an interview on, on his most recent book, The Triumph of the Modern Self, identifies two different ways that people throughout history have conceptualized the, self, the individual, the self, and the self's relationship to the larger world. The first way finds its roots in Judeo-Christian thought. You see this in the psalmists. The psalmists are aware of the self in ways that are unique among ancient writers. And so they are wrestling with the self, with this inner reality, with their own soul, as they are struggling to live in the larger world. It's a way of wrestling with the self that you find later in writers like the Apostle Paul or a little bit later in uh, St. Augustine in his Confessions. 
And in this way of conceiving the self, there is an internal conversation that takes place. It's an inward look, not to find what is good and right and true inside of yourself, but to discern what is keeping me back from what is good and right and true out there, out in the larger world that God has made, out with God. It's an inward look for the sake of moving outward again for the sake of realigning with God and realigning with the world as he's made it. And so in this view, the self is struggling to live well in this world when what? When it's misaligned with how God made the world to be. And so in that case, the self needs what? It needs to be taught. It needs to be corrected when it's wrong. And it needs that correction so that it can fit into the larger existing structure of the world from which it's deviated. That's one view of the self. Second view of the self, the modern one, has its roots back in the 1800s. In this view, the self is the source of what's right. And the self now needs to be protected from that larger world that's wrong. Truman argues this way of thinking comes about when writers like Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, Darwin demolish any notion of an external moral structure into which we must fit ourselves. And once that larger external moral structure is gone, there's no longer a necessity for the self to find goodness and truth outside itself, to adjust itself and conform to a larger reality. Instead, now the self becomes the source. And so what needs to change is not the self. What needs to change when there's a mismatch is the larger world. Truman argues that if you buy into this view of the self and if you want to help someone in the modern world who's bought into this view of the self, you don't bring an external truth to them to which they have to adjust. Instead, your goal is that they don't feel inadequate as a self, that they don't feel hurt by the larger world. And so you try to protect them from things that challenge the way that they conceive themselves, or you work to transform the outer culture in a way that affirms them as an individual. That is now the predominant view of the self in the larger world. That's the world you live in. That's the air you breathe. For some of you, that's the air you've been breathing your entire lives, which makes it really hard when you come to Deuteronomy 6 and you hear God say, no, now that I've rescued you, taken you out of that world in which you once lived, including the thought world in which you lived. Now you need to learn to think like I do. You need to change. You need to approach the larger world differently. You need to approach it like I do. You need to internalize my commands so that they shape what you want out of life, so that they shape what you see as you look around at life, and so they shape what you do as you engage life. My commands, God says, now correct you to help you get in line with the way that the world is, with the way that I made the world to be. That is a hard challenge for us as moderns. It's an even harder challenge for our children. And so you need to internalize these commands for yourself and parents, you need to teach them. You need to teach this way of understanding reality to your children. Verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. When you sit, 
and when you walk, in the house and by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. We're not talking here about a once-a-day family devotional time. That's helpful. But there's something much bigger in mind here, something much bigger in view. We're talking about a 24-7 activity so that from breakfast to bedtime, you're immersing your children in God's moral universe. You are teaching your children. You are being diligent. You're being intentional. You're surrounding them with God's commands in every area of life so that no part of life is exempt, so that every part of life is now connected to God and to how he's made the world. You're not just pulling away every now and then to read and hear God's word. Instead, this is active. You're entering into life. You're entering into your child's life with God's words, with the way that God has made the world. Now, let me say here, you can't make God's words be on their hearts. It's not part of your responsibility. You can't make them love what God says. You can't make them value what he says. You can't change their hearts. That is outside of your ability. But you are responsible for making them aware of his words and making them aware of how his words connect to all of life. You can make sure that in your home, their actions and their visions, their hands and their eyes are dominated by his words so that your children understand how they should live life, what they should want out of life, what they should do in life. I'm going to put a fine point on it here now for us. That's not Moses' job. It's not Moses' job to teach all of the children of all of the families in Israel. It is Moses' job to relay God's words to the people, but then it's the people's job to relay those words to their children so that their children learn to see life like God sees life and to act like God acts. Those parents are on site in their children's lives. They see their children's needs in ways that Moses just can't. And so they're the ones who are best positioned to apply God's words as they're sitting, as they're walking, as they're rising, as they're lying down. And that's true of you too. The church can help you, parents, shepherd your children. We will help you. But God gives the primary responsibility to you. He doesn't think that you're too old to teach these things to your children, that the generation gap disqualifies you. He doesn't think that you're out, too out of touch with their world. He thinks you are exactly the right person to do this kind of teaching and talking. And when you read the New Testament, you realize that singles, couples without children, couples whose children have grown, they do this too. Jesus and Paul, both single, spent their lives teaching everywhere they went. Why is that? It's because when God brings you into his family, it is now your family. And that means that you have an obligation to teach and to talk about God's commands within this family to the rest of the people who are also part of it. You may not have your own children at this time to pass God's commands on to, but there are plenty of people in God's family who don't know as much as you do. Even if you've only been a believer for a few months, you already know enough about the Lord to pass on to someone who doesn't yet know what you know. Now, I can imagine at this moment that some people are going to object. And they're going to say, Bill, you don't understand. I'm too busy. 
I'm too busy to teach my kids much of anything. I'm even too busy to spend time learning and internalizing God's God's commands for myself. I'm just trying to get by. I want to lean into that gently, and I'm going to lean into it firmly. Because if you're telling me that you're too busy to learn and adopt God's way of thinking about the world, respectfully, you're just too busy. Because being busy doesn't mean that you stop thinking about life. It means that you're going to default to using Egypt's way of thinking in order to think about life. And it means that your kids are going to use Egypt's way because you're going to let Egypt teach your kids. It's not going to be good for them. It's not going to be good for you. I don't stop thinking just because I don't carve out the time to learn how to do it well, to internalize God's commands. I just end up thinking in ways that have little to do with this God who's rescued me. And so I do make time. Personally, read scripture over and over and over. Why? I tend to forget what I read. I read it over and over because I live in a world that is constantly, intentionally trying to teach me to think differently than God thinks. And so I read scripture. And I read theology. At which point someone will say, well, Bill, of course, that's what you're supposed to do. That's your job. No, I, I read theology outside of work hours. Sometimes devotionally in the morning. Sometimes uh, at, in the evening. I will read theology uh, on my Sabbath or at lunchtime. Why? Those categories help me understand Scripture better. Helps me understand how to hold on to Scripture. They provide me with a lens through which to to look at my life, to think about my life, to think about my kids' lives. They give me ways of understanding what I'm seeing with my kids and then how to enter in with God's commands. J.I. Packer put together a book, really good book, nice book, called Concise Theology. This book is broken up into 94 different chapters. They're really short. They're like two pages each. You can read one a day. You, you put it in the bathroom, put it on the back of the toilet tank. Uh, you, if you did one a day, you'll finish in three months. You'll have covered all of the major doctrines of our faith. Very readable. And so young people, teenagers, college students, talking to you right now, this is a book that you should get and read. Will it be fun and exciting? It's not going to be Harry Potter, but it's not boring either. And what it's going to do is it's going to give you mental categories that'll make it easier for you to internalize God's word and make it part of you. If you start now, make this a summer goal, you'll be done reading it before school starts. It'll help you as you enter into your studies in school, help you to think about the world that you're being taught. Parents, this is something you should get and read right now as well because it'll help you to have that big picture of how God thinks so that you can figure out better how to bring his thoughts to your children. Highly recommend this to us as a church. Concise Theology by J.I. Packer. Here's another resource that I think is really, really good. I've mentioned Rebecca McLaughlin before. She recently put this book out. It's called 10 Questions That Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. It's a book written for teenagers who live in today's society. Helps us think about the issues of our day from God's perspective. And one of the things that I love about Rebecca, I don't know her personally, but one of the things that I love about her, she does not pull punches. She engages topics like racism, relativism, abortion, 
science and faith, same-sex attraction, gender identity, a whole lot more. She has a little bit of an edgy vibe to her, kind of like her. Um, again, easy book to read, packed with modern examples, helping us think about them from God's perspective. Again, teens, college students, this is a must-read for you. This ought to be on your summer reading list, something that you get finished before you go back to school in September, something that will be helpful for you now as you think about the world, something that's a good resource to put on your shelf so that you can go back to it when you get that question from your friend or when something comes up in class. Not only for you, however, I found the book helpful. Parents, I think you would too. Even if you're parenting very young children, the time to understand the issues of the modern world is not when your children are fully immersed in them. It's now, before that happens. Title again, 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. You and I need to be brought out of our philosophical systems. We've been taught to think in ways that have nothing to do with God or with how he thinks. You and I need to be brought out of those and brought into how God understands the world that he has made. And one day, his system's gonna be the only one that exists. There aren't going to be any competing systems, no other challenges to him or any that will hurt people. That day did not happen in Israel's time. They struggled to obey Deuteronomy 6. They could not bring themselves to take the laws, the commands that God wrote on stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, could not bring them into their hearts because as the prophet Ezekiel put it, their own hearts were made out of stone. Before they could have God's words on their hearts, they needed new hearts, soft hearts, hearts that would be receptive to God. And that's what God promised to do for them. Ezekiel chapter 36, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You hear the gospel here. I will do this for you. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will do this so that you can respond to me. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came loving the Lord with all his heart, soul, and strength. He had God's commands on his heart, and he came in order to bring us out, not out of slavery to Egypt, but out of slavery to sin. He died for every time that we failed to internalize God's commands, every time we failed to teach God's commands. And he established our righteousness with God by his own righteousness. He writes God's words on our hearts, and he brings us into the new creation where one day the only morality will be God's, as it lines up perfectly with the rest of the universe. Since that's your future, if you've trusted Christ, live that today. Internalize his words, have them on your heart, talk about them constantly, whether it's with your child or with any other child in the family of God. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have come to rescue us. Thank you that you did not leave us alone. Thank you that you did not rescue us and leave us. Thank you that you have given us a brand new world in which to live. Lord, let us take that really seriously and let us embrace your words like we have embraced no one else's. Lord, write them on our hearts so that they then are ways that we think, that we live, that we value. In Jesus' name, amen.